are thankful to be to be called yours today. We're thankful that um, you love us and you care about us. And we give you all the honor and praise today. We're thankful for the work that you've done in our lives and are continuing to do in our lives because of what your son has done. We proclaim his victory. Your word proclaims his victory. We know that if we don't, even the rocks may cry out. And we pray that you'd help us this morning as we look into your word. We pray that you'd help us uh, to be sharpened. We know that iron sharpens iron. We know that your word um, can cut right to the heart, right to our hearts. I would pray that uh, you would root out what you need to root out of us. I pray that you'd help us to become those that are wholly yours and, and fully running after you in all that we do. And so we pray that you'd help us now as we look into your, your holy word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You know, week after week, it's an awesome thing to gather together with family and praise God, isn't it? It's a sweet thing to be here. I pray that you're blessed. Uh, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 20. We're going to start off uh, right in the book. Luke chapter 20, we're starting a brand new series uh, that we're going to split right in half with Easter. That's an awesome thing uh, to celebrate in the middle of this where we're looking at the authority of Christ. Uh, right in the middle of it, we're going to talk about a picture of his authority uh, proven as he uh, rises from the grave to show that he has power over death and hell. Isn't that awesome? So we, I hope you're paying attention during this uh, six-week series we're going to be doing, and it's called, So What Do I Do With That? Uh, the reason is Christ shows his authority through many significant little moments and statements that as people read them, they look at that and they're like, okay, this is some hard reading. This is where Jesus shows up and those who already have a proclivity to hate him fall away. So turn to uh, Luke chapter 20. Uh, as you're turning there, I, I, um, I've been asked by the guys just to share very briefly about uh, some things coming up very quickly. And um, th this has been an amazing journey this last year for me. This is the one-year anniversary of when they told me officially, hey, it's cancer, and they began treatment uh, this, uh, this weekend. And, um, uh, and yet, as I get ready to share some information with you, I, I was reminded of an ocean liner uh, that was filled with yo-yos and ran into a horrific storm. And they said that the thing sunk and re-emerged 13 times before help could get there. Uh, I feel a little bit like that this morning when I share with you uh, that, that uh, in the process of declaring that I'm healthy, that I'm cancer-free, uh, they literally had this moment where one of the doctors said, but hey, what's that? Uh, and they found something in my back, and they uh, went in to, uh, and took an MRI of the spine, and there is something in there. If you just take the end of your thumb, and the average thumb will do. Uh, for the illustration here, but uh, I have something about the size of the end of your thumb that's right dead center in the middle of my spine, pressing on my spinal column. It's in uh, uh, playing with my nerves. So it gets a little tricky to decide what's the process of recovery and what is this tumor that's in there, and uh, it's benign, they believe. Um, really good chance it's benign because it didn't get affected by all the other treatment. They went back and saw that there were hints of it on other scans. But the result is that they're going to go in and do some amazing doctoring, uh, do a surgery, and, and I'll be uh, out, they, they think, for about six weeks because uh, they got to cut into the spine there. And 
They have amazing doctors, by the way. You know, they can actually take these little nerve stimulators and touch every single nerve inside your spinal column now, and you can still, on the other side of that, walk. I'm told. <laughs> if not, I got the coolest wheelchair picked out that I uh, have been envious of. Uh, as I share that with you, I, I'm just uh, aware that sometimes it's a little bit, uh, th this is a, a volatile thing. I mean, uh, Christina and I, as we begin to talk about the different things that we we're facing, sometimes we're just afraid to tell people we're like, really, this is happening. Uh, but I was aware this morning, I, I ran into three different cancer buddies this morning. Folks that are in this auditorium, and I believe are sitting here with us as a direct result of prayer. Uh, and I was reminded that I, I'm not the only one in this room that's been facing up and down journeys in this last year. Amen? Amen. And so this is what I want to do this morning. Uh, as we start, and we're looking at for six weeks, the authority of Jesus, the fact that he came uh, not just to seek and save the lost, but to give us a new kind of abundant life where the life that we live here is filled with a richness of anticipation of seeing him someday. Um, but that means that it's going to touch our everyday life where we do walk through valleys. We walk through them. And so what I wanted to do very quickly, and if you're uncomfortable with this, I understand. But if in this last year you've been facing cancer, if in this last year you have been uh, facing medical hardships that have complicated your life, if in this last year you have been facing the consequences of either your own decisions or just uh, complications in your life that are so significant it has required others to help you, and you know that this morning you're also in need of prayer, caveat with that, but also you are thankful for the body of Christ and how they've already supported you, would you just stand in this auditorium right now? And I'd like to pray for you as we start. I want you to look around. Hardship is real. Amen? But our God is bigger. Let me pray for you as you stand, and we'll start this morning. Father God, we just come before you right now. And for those that stand, we know that uh, hardship sometimes doesn't have an end date. Uh, there will be, for some of us, hardships that follow us all the way till the last minute we draw breath here. Uh, and I pray, Father, that uh, for those that face that or for those that you quickly heal, for those where hardship is just a severe season that they can give testimony to, and for those who will have many seasons even yet to come, Father, that all of us collectively would say two things. First of all, that our God reigns. We see your hand in our lives and we confess it and we pray that you would fill us up in those dark moments with that sense of hope and the clear picture that you are in control. You are the God of the universe. Father, we praise you for that. But also I pray that right here in this room, uh, that this is a perfect place to be. Uh, seated are those that love you and who have hearts uh, that go out to you on behalf of those that are standing. Father, I've heard their prayers. Uh, not just passerby, I'll pray for you someday type prayers. These are prayers where people are shaking the heavens and going to their knees. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to use us as the body of Christ to surround them that when they can't sense your presence, they would feel our arms. Father, that we would be there in those highs and lows, proclaiming your goodness, trusting 
your faithfulness and anticipating your return. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. We have a good God, true? Yes. Yeah. But in Luke chapter 20, our God and King is getting challenged by those who were not concerned so much about who he was or what he could accomplish. They were more concerned about the fact that if he was God and King, then they were going to lose their position or standing. And I want you to understand the entire time that we go through this passage, I think that this opening sequence is meant for you and I. We already know that the Pharisees are scoundrels, right? We already know that the scribes and the Pharisees were completely missing the point. But I believe that it, this exchange is happening right now to ask you a question as you face Christ looking at the cross, to ask you to consider how do you answer. And before you're too quick, you might say, well, I'm here, right? I'm at church. It's not exactly like church is popular in the United States these days, right? Didn't I make a declaration? But I'm going to tell you this. Every single day, believers stay silent. Every single day, believers uh, live lives that are hidden. Every single day, believers are stepping back in the face of opposition. And they do that because they're waiting to see if popular opinion will allow them to speak. They're afraid of their position and place. That's a scribe and a Pharisee in this context and not a disciple. So this passage is speaking, it's pointing, it's tapping its finger right straight through and onto our chest from that day till today. So as we hear the Pharisees and the scribes ask their question, hear our voices, and then consider at the end, how would you respond to Jesus when it's evident that he's the one that has authority? Luke chapter 20, let's stand and read this together. And it says this, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or what is, who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question. You tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say, from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, from men, then the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know from where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you believe that Jesus has the right to speak this way to people? <laughs> he does. You may be seated. In your notes, it says, Jesus Christ was a man of perfect passion. He was not weepy or sentimental, but he did cry about things that broke his loving heart. He was not moody or bad-tempered, but he was angry about hypocrisy and injustice. By the way, part of this, uh, I think Pete quoted last week from this same uh, section here, uh, but Philip Ryken has a couple of points I want you to see right here that are significant. It says, here as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we see his love for God's city and his zeal for God's house. We also see how people responded to this passionate man, either by seeking to destroy him or by hanging on his every word. 
Jesus went to Jerusalem, writes Henri Nguyen, to announce that good news to the people of that city. And Jesus knew that he was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? There is no middle ground here. Jesus went to Jerusalem to put people in a situation where they had to say yes or no. We can only lament that some of the same sins which made Jesus so angry in Jerusalem are so common in the contemporary church. Rather than having a burden for the lost and a heart for the poor and a soul for prayer, we are lazy in our evangelism, greedy in our materialism, and stingy with our prayers. Jesus came to clean things up. And it is important to notice how he did it, by teaching the word of God. But that is missed so many times. Jesus did not simply drive people out of the temple, but claimed it for his pulpit and started preaching the kingdom of God. This was the last week of his life. And Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. There in the house of God, he was giving lost people the gospel, teaching them to show mercy, calling them to prayer, all things that were at the heart of his passion. Sadly, some people refused to hear a word of it. Luke tells us the chief priests and scribes, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him. Of course they were. They were against everything Jesus stood for. The religious leaders quickly recognized the dilemma. If Jesus was right, then they were in trouble. In Luke 20, those in authority tried to embarrass Jesus with a question, and the results instead would embarrass them. This is a fairly simple passage to point out. I think the, uh, the essence of it is that it asks us a pointed question. Fairly simple. I just want to walk through this, uh, and I want you to be able to see what it is that they were debating, the question that was asked to Jesus, the question he asked to them, and ultimately the question that is asked to us. First, what is uh, at stake? Jesus is working miracles, cleansing the temple, and preaching the gospel. It says, on one of those days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes confronted him, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Now, the things are listed in verse 1 and in the chapter beforehand, and that is simply that he goes into the temple and he has the audacity to drive out the money changers and the people who were, who were robbing the worshipers. Then he begins to preach. He inserts himself in that place where they used to get money, and he instead begins to tell them of true things of value. He speaks to them, and on top of all of that, he is healing them for free. Is that crazy? They said, why in the world are you doing these things, tauta, these things, plural? It's all of these things that were bothering these leaders. Second thing that you have to notice here is that the leaders are angry. It says that uh, they confronted him. Uh, some of your Bibles might say they rose up uh, or they uh, came to him, but it's the idea that they came abruptly. Uh, it actually has uh, a sudden appearance. Here are these leaders, and they're hiding in the temple topiary, okay? They jump out of the bushes. Gotcha, Jesus, what are you doing now? as if he's doing some sneaky project. There's thousands of people, right? And they're all coming to Jesus, and he's teaching right out in the open. But they sneak up on him. Have you ever watched, like, your pet cat, and it can actually see, you know, you watching it? 
as it is sneaking up, thinking it's being sneaky, wiggles its tail, you know, jumps, does a fake jump, and then walks off all proud. <laughs> Your cat's a Pharisee. <laughs> that just needed to be said. It leads to a question. The first question that we see here is a question to him. The question to Jesus. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? This is an interesting discussion. We have some uh, pictures here, and I just want you uh, to notice the different versions of authority that we actually have. These are coming out of uh, a dictionary. I tried to give you some pictures to wrap your mind around it. Uh, But we actually have in uh, this passage all these versions of authority visible. And the first is the authority of a government entity. Uh, If you were going to say that the, uh, you know, federal housing authority was here, you would have somebody who was speaking with authority that was given to them by a government or by a group of people that had been elected to that position. And so the idea is that there is this entity that is over you that has authority to speak or has authority to change the direction of your life. Uh, Another way that we speak of authority is when there's a person of authority, a person that has attributed authority. This is Richard Dawkins. It's an interesting thing to me that he is considered to be an authority in the area of logic or even an authority in the area of spirituality, but he doesn't have a doctorate in any of those things. In fact, many of the things that he speaks on, he doesn't have a doctorate on. He gets mad at other people for doing that, all right? But just because he's considered an authority, people listen to his, I'm going to say this, half-baked arguments, okay? We're going to cover some of those even this summer, so stick around. Uh, We're going to cover some of those arguments that I I think have actually been defeated ever since the 50s. They're just because we are in a society that doesn't read well, they're getting rebaked again. But here is Dawkins, who has assumed that he is a person with authority, and he speaks in broad areas, and people take his voice. But there's also a presence, somebody who has the air of authority, Billy Graham. When he would walk into a room, it didn't matter who you were, people began to settle down or take note. It wasn't just that he looked like Moses. (laughs) It was that he had actually read what Moses said, and he had authority when he would speak. He would tell people to come to Christ. There was a presence to him that went beyond uh, just the mere person. But there's also a show of strength. This guy's about to throw Mr. Red Pants down with authority. Okay? You throw them down with authority. Now, you think this might be just a side note, but actually, this is the authority that we look to most often as humans. In fact, your talk radio people think that this is what they are doing, that they are showing by their strength. Our uh, current media crisis that we are having is they are trying to make big sweeping differences by making authoritative statements, but what they're trying to do is crash the system by making strong statements on both sides. I'm not going to pick a side here. I'm saying that we are all getting it wrong. We've lost the ability to have conversations in our society because we think the goal is to throw somebody to the ground rather than to thoughtfully approach whatever it is we're talking about. We have lost the ability to have civic discussions, civil discussions, because of this, to throw them down with authority. But there's also another picture, and that is uh, twofold in this one. Here you have this scribe. Um, this man that is reading a book uh, in this one, actually it's the, the Bible, and you have two final pictures of authority. You have somebody who has studied and other people have said they are an authority on this subject because not only of their vast knowledge, but because of the gravity 
of who they are when they read this. They have a vast body of knowledge that they can speak from. And when they say it, you'll go and cite the source, which is the second one. The Bible is used quite often as a sole authority. Have you ever heard that? It's a source that tells us truth that we can quote and we can trust. Now, in this passage, every aspect of authority is about to be lifted up. By what authority or on whose authority? Any aspect of authority you want to pick. Exousia is the term that they're using here. By what kind of exousia do you actually do these things? I just want you to note something. Uh, Luke actually uses this term throughout the book in a most interesting way. At the very beginning, in chapter 4, verse 6, you can write that down there, we see Satan coming to Jesus, claiming to have authority. You lay down in front of me right now, and we don't even have to go through this next three and a half years. There's no cross, no worry. You just bow and worship me, and I have the authority to take away the cross. That's what he claims. He doesn't actually have the authority to do anything to Jesus. It was evident in that moment. But he knew what the plan was, and he tries to twist that around to show that he has significant exousia, authority. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 32, the people were amazed that Jesus taught with authority. That is, he didn't cite anybody else, but he spoke literally as if he had written the words himself. He spoke the word of God as if he were the author. That's significant. In chapter 9, verse 1, he actually gives authority to his disciples for a short missionary venture. They come back, and in chapter 10, verse 19, he gives his authority to 70 missionaries, okay? That's the center of this little grouping of where Luke uses authority. Now we're coming to our primary passage, chapter 20, verse 2. The central question is, who gave you authority? And once again, at the very end, chapter 22, verse 53, evil, Satan is given authority in a moment to take Christ to the cross. You begin and end with Satan. In fact, uh, for theologians, sometimes they will look for, for uh, these patterns, keistic structures, they, cause those, they call those. And in the Hebrew world, in a keistic structure, what you focus on is not the beginning or the end. You focus on the center of that keistic structure. That is the thrust and the main point. And that is that Christ gives his, authorities to, his authority to believers. Is that wild? It sounds like Matthew 28. The whole point of this discussion of authority is, does Satan have it or does Jesus have it? And when he has it, what does he do with it? He gives it to you and I. Satan doesn't have the authority. But now we have two groups of people. And you really aren't just choosing whether or not the Pharisees are valid or Jesus is valid. You're choosing between evil and good. We're heading to the cross, and the first moment is, which side do you stand on? The leaders claimed all kinds of authority, but they were giving questions hoping to trap him. It's interesting. There's uh, a bunch of questions that you could ask, and I really do believe that sometimes it's uh, either the questioner or the one that's being questioned. You can see these questions getting muddy. These are actually a group of questions asked by lawyers in court records, okay? One, uh, a, doc a lawyer actually said that, now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in their sleep, they don't know it until the next morning? <laughs> it's actually in a transcript. Another one said, hey, the youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? Was it you or your younger brother who was killed in war? 
That was an actual question. How far apart were the vehicles when they collided? I think they were close. Uh, sometimes it's the follow-up to a question that's funny. Can you describe the individual? Well, he was about medium height and he had a beard. Was he a male or a female? That wasn't a good follow-up. Sometimes it's the answer that's funny. Okay, sir, all of your questions must be oral. Where did you go to school? And the answer was oral. Yeah, you've heard that, huh? Final question. Were you shot in the fracas? No, I was shot between the fracas and the navel. <laughs> Sometimes the answer is a problem. In this moment, uh, there's no other way to take this. These men were out to trap Jesus, and it's not that the question is unknowable or that the answer is unreasonable. It's that these men understood that if Jesus were to continue with the authority that he had while he was sitting there speaking, that all of the people would follow him. They would lose their position in their place. When they were asking Jesus this question, they inferred that his authority needed to come from him. Hey, Jesus, we'll let you do this. You just need to come and get a badge or a uh, diploma uh, or a certificate from us. You need to come and ask permission and show people that you've asked the right authorities. Once again, before we get off of this uh, point, I, I need you to understand that we assume this same type of authority when we decide whether or not to be convicted by Scripture. You and I, when we hear the words of Christ and do nothing, when we hear the word of God and stay put, when we hear the word of God and are convicted by it, but do not move forward, but begin to say, did God really say that? By the way, that's an age-old question, right? Did God really say? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We are in this position. This exchange of questions, I'll say it again, is meant to pierce our hearts. The key is that it's best to seek truth humbly. But there's a second question that we see in here, and that is a question to them from Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? Who's the one who gave you this authority? Jesus doesn't answer that directly. Instead, he answers and says to them, I will ask you a question, and you tell me. That's a proof, by the way, that he's a rabbi, right? Answer a question with a question. That's legit in one field, if you're a rabbi. Was the baptism of John from heaven or of men? If, Jesus's or if John's authority was from heaven, then that meant, that was a way of saying that it was God who gave him the authority to do what he did. They knew that this wasn't just a question of, hey, was John authorized to do what he did? But literally, if John was, uh, was, the, was sent from heaven, if God had authored his activity, then why didn't you do what he asked you to do? If you knew that it was God who had told him to go and say those words, why didn't you respond? This is a condemning question. One of the key ways that they would establish authority in Jesus' day that each of these men would have had to establish their authority by was testimony. In fact, this goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. Christ takes them back to a Mosaic expectation. Um, Lex talionis, the argument in kind. You say there's an answer here. Let's use the same criteria. I'll, you use the answer to my question. 
as the answer to the question above, and we'll both walk away satisfied. Let's go back to the book of Moses. You need to have a testimony. Jesus already, in this book, in Luke, has had the testimony of angels. Angels announcing his birth and people saying, we heard from angels that this is the Messiah, that this is the Savior, that this is the Holy One of God. He had the testimony of foreign kings, In other chapters, we see that foreign kings are actually coming to worship him because they had received a testimony. He had the testimony of Scripture. It's an interesting one. Deuteronomy chapter 18, once again, Moses speaking here. Verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You'll listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of this Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth. He'll speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Verse 22, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Christ actually says, hey, let's go back to this mosaic testimony the testimony of scripture says not only do i anticipate me but everything i say is going to be true why don't you test it go and see if there's anything that i have said was about to happen anything i said was uh, was a miracle any of these things that are being said about me if they have any hint of ungodliness in them they do not he had the testimony of the masses these people had witnessed every aspect of his life and were all saying the same thing He had the testimony of miracles. Wherever he went, he was leaving behind a trail that he could change the elements and transform the situation of every single person in Israel with just a touch, with just a word, over distance. He could heal. It wasn't some trick he was doing in front of them. At a great distance, he could heal people with just a word, with just a statement, and all of the masses were saying these miracles were there. At his baptism, once again, with John present, he had the testimony of the voice of God. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And finally, he had the testimony of a prophet, sevenfold witness of Jesus. The testimony of a prophet, which prophet? John, who also at the very beginning had a unique birth that everybody witnessed. This is an amazing thing. Jesus in this moment says, hey, let's go back. Let's just test and see. You think I need credentials from you? Why don't you top these? Here's the credentials. John was sitting right in front of you, and he had a set of credentials like mine. Was he from heaven? Can you see it? The problem wasn't that they needed clarity. It was that they didn't like the conclusion. That's consistently the problem. Now, I need you to understand this this question is no mere trifle. This isn't just something that we kind of play around at. I I found an article about uh, something that had happened just a little while ago, Wall Street Journal. 
Um, and there was a guy by the name of Warren Weinstein, which it's unfortunate today that he has that name, but this was a guy that had actually been uh, an American aid worker, an economic advisor. He was held hostage in Pakistan since 2011. In 2012, his family had actually raised $250,000, and he was told by the Pakistani government and some people within the American government that they could actually get that money to a group of people that were holding this aid worker, that they could give this group of people the money and they would purchase, redeem um, Weinstein, Mr. Weinstein, and pull him out of that horrible, horrible situation. They raise all the money, they hand off all of that money. Three years later, he's still in captivity. And in a missile strike that was intended to attack the Taliban, he was actually killed. With great devastation, the family says, uh, not only were devastated by the news and the knowledge that our husband and father will never safely return home, we were so hopeful that those in the U.S. and Pakistani governments who said they had the power to take action and secure his release would have done everything possible to do so. There are no words to do justice to this disappointment. How does that relate to this morning? This is the key question. Christ is sitting there and it says, on what power, by what authority do you do these things? Do you cleanse the temple? By the way, when the veil was ripped from top to bottom, the presence of God moves from a place to a person. That's you and I. You know, he's still concerned about how clean the temple is today. He cleanses the temple. He does miracles. It starts with drawing people to himself who in their own would never look his direction, and it ends. The capstone was healing them around him to show that he actually was God. And he spoke the gospel, it says. He was preaching the kingdom. Do you have... Uh, uh, confidence that the thing or the person that you have placed your hope in has the ability to purchase your life, to redeem your life, to buy you back from the consequences of how you've lived. That's the central issue. Jesus says, it's pretty evident where the authority comes from, and now the message becomes central, and if this message is true, then I place it in your lap. He's using the mosaic model for authority and he assumes right there that true authority is easily recognized. There was a question from them to Jesus. There was a question from him to them. And now there is a question to us. Matthew chapter 28 actually gives us a, a statement. Here it is. The words of Christ to you and I. It says, go therefore, right? And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All the way through the New Testament, you flip through this uh, profound book that is a bunch of men writing down what it was that Christ had told them to say, an encouragement to the church age to live exactly as Christ had told them that we ought to live. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Finally, in the very last book, Revelation chapter 20, 
John says that I saw there a great white throne and he who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Mark that down. What books are they? Romans 2, 15 and 16 tells us there's a book of conscience. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, it's a book of words. Matthew chapter 16, there's a book of works. But the capstone is the Lamb's book of life. No matter how you've faltered in all those other books, if your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, if you've trusted him with that ultimate thing, you have eternity. The books are laid open. They say, let's see how you lived. Did you actually trust Christ as the sole authority? Did you recognize his authority? And if you say that you've recognized authority, what is the sign that you've submitted? This is central. Now, the next few weeks, we're going to unpack what it looks like as Christ moves from scene to scene and asserts this authority that is evident at the very beginning. But before we walk that trail with him, the question that I would have for you is, have you submitted your life to Christ? Do you find yourself functionally in the position of the scribes and the Pharisees saying, how dare you ask, or why would you say, or how come you're asking me to? And even with the conviction of the word of God, you find yourself hard to move. You don't step forward. You resist his statements. Christ only has one expectation for you. Yield. Today, give your life to Christ instead of your own opinion. When you walk your way, destruction, ruin, misery, bother is all that you get. But when you follow the Savior, it is peace and freedom and promise. Amen? He sets us free. That is the choice that is laid before us. When we answer this question rightly, we see Christ's authority was from heaven. He is the living God, and he desires to set you free. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us not just to wrap our minds around this passage and the question that it asks us, but that you would enable us to be able to submit. Help us to understand what is at stake. I pray, Father, that we would see even in this back-and-forth exchange the fact that quite often we put ourselves in the place of scribes and Pharisees by not following through with what we know you have taught or asked of us. Father, I pray right now that you would give us a heavy sense of conviction not condemnation, your word says. We're set free from that, but conviction. If there is an area where Christ, as it was in our mind, if we could see him right now, is teaching and expecting and pushing for us to act in a certain area. If there's an area that shows up in our mind's eye, in our heart's ear, as we hear these words, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to get it right today, that we would submit to Christ, that we would yield to the cross, that we would have hope for eternity because of the finished work of Christ, and that we would walk accordingly. We ask this in Christ's name.